Good morning, Northbrook. This morning's text will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I'll be reading from the House Bible on page 954. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you're welcome to run and grab one off the back table. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take one as a gift from us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. I'm Jake Ledette. It's always great to be with you. Um, so in Australia, they have this sport. It's called Australian Rules Football. Um, and so it's, or footy is what I hear it's also called. And it's not soccer. It's not rugby. It's not any other thing that you might think it is. It's this its own thing. Surely you didn't. Did you, when you went to Australia, you never, did you, did you see them? Okay. My brother-in-law was uh, struck, stuck in Australia for about a month. And so he's, you can ask him any questions you have about that sport. Um, but, and I, I know nothing about it, but I bring it up because there's a, a league or a, a team that was brought up in the news uh, recently. They hired a new CEO, the Essendon Football Club, um, Andrew Thorburn. They hired him and subsequently 30 hours later fired him. Um, and uh, uh, this guy, Andrew Thorburn, uh, he was a successful CEO of many banks in New Zealand and Australia. And then he'd actually been a fan of this club from when he was a little kid uh, and he got this job. Obviously, as you can imagine, he's uh, really excited about getting to be a part of it uh, later in his career, perhaps his last job that he gets to finish out his career in. Um, so the question, why, it, you know, did he get fired for after 30 hours? You, obviously, we could think of stuff like job performance, but obviously he didn't have enough time to perform. That was not the issue. Uh, did he do something illegal? Did they discover something illegal about who he was or what he had done? No, there was nothing like that. Was it even something that he said? Was it a quote from him saying something that was offensive in some kind of way? No, that is not why he was fired. He was fired because of this. There's a picture, rather. Um, so this is City on a Hill, uh, Anglican Church, and actually an Acts 29 church uh, in Australia. And Andrew Thorburn is simply on uh, the leadership council there. He's a, he's a director at this church. And so he gets hired. They find out that he's, you know, uh, uh, in a leadership role at this church. Uh, and then they find out some of the beliefs that just this church holds, and then they fire him. Um, so he didn't do anything. Well, he did do something. He didn't say anything. It was no quote that came from him. Uh, there was no activity that he was found that was inappropriate. He was simply guilty by being a member at uh, a local church. Um, and so... 
you know, in thinking about this and researching this and, and hearing about it, first of all, there's, there's, you know, if you're on Twitter and, and you've seen any of this, there's just a lot of chatter about what has happened and why it happened. Uh, but there's some clear things that have come from this experience. This is what one, uh, Michael Bradley, he wrote an article in The Guardian, uh, as you'll see, a non-Christian guy. And, and he says this about this whole thing. He says, it is a peculiar feature of religious faith that it projects outwards, determining not just what individuals believe for themselves, but what others may and may not physically be and do. LGBTQI plus people are told by religions to which they do not belong, that they do not legitimately exist in the form of their choice. Women are told what to do with their own bodies. That is problematic. In terms not of modern social mores, but basic and eternal human dignity. That's what he appeals to here. It sets up a conflict that is intractable, which is exactly where Essendon found itself stuck. The point is not that Thorburn personally believes he can run a football club that openly welcomes people to which the church he leads treats as an abomination because he would never impose his own views on anyone else. The point is that he sought simultaneously to be the public spokesperson for two sets of values that are directly opposed and cannot be reconciled. Uh, the premier of Victoria, basically like the governor of this area um, where all of this happened, he said the church's views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views. That kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry, it is just wrong. And so being a member uh, at a church um, that says abortion is wrong and holding to a biblical view of sex and sexuality to these two people are absolutely appalling. And so to sum up, a qualified, capable person was fired from a fairly prestigious position, a $40 million club, uh, because he is in a leadership position at a church that believes abortion is wrong and holds to a biblical view of sex and sexuality. And uh, again, an Acts 29 church, same church planting network that we're actually a part of. And so the question about this as you hear this, and uh, maybe this is a more clear picture of something like this happening. Maybe you've heard of things like this happening before. Just a clear question is, how do you respond? Uh, how do you respond? Uh, for a moment, think of the Christians in Asia Minor that, that uh, Peter is writing to. Um, th this kind of news is perhaps shocking to us, but it would not have been shocking to them. They would actually have been surprised if a Christian would have ever been considered for a position like this. They are like in a position of being ostracized and ridiculed for their faith um, and being left out of most things in the culture. And so uh, you can consider what that would have been like uh, for them. And the reality is Peter is writing to them with the same words we need to hear. So as we think about our response, Peter is writing to them to encourage them as they respond to these same kind of realities. But I think before we even get to God's word, we have to capture how we feel. We have to capture kind of our natural response to these kinds of things. Because here's what can happen is we can not capture that. And when we don't do that well, we go to God's word to be confirmed in what we already believe. Um, we go to, we believe a certain way, we think a certain way, and we find what we want to find in God's Word. Uh, but God's Word is not there to, like, encourage our proclivities. It, it's there to, to shape them into the image of Christ. 
It's there to encourage what's good, convict and correct uh, what's bad. And, and all, every one of our responses, especially, well, if, we, if we're a Christian, we have both of those. So surely your natural response, some, not all of that was bad, but I can promise you not all of it is right. Um, and so that's why we go to God's word for those things to be sharpened and shaped as we look to uh, engage with the culture. Um, personally, as I was reading and learning more about this situation, including an, an interview with the pastor, Guy Mason, um, that where he just got kind of ripped to shreds uh, about this on, in an interview. It was, it was a bit uh, hard to watch. I found clear anger rising up and anger from people mischaracterizing Christians, uh, misunderstanding the Bible's teachings, people discriminating bro- against brothers and sisters for holding the same truths that I believe. Uh, I find just kind of my sense of justice kind of rising up in me. Uh, and so that's how I tend to respond. And so as I go to God's word, I want my response to be sharpened and shaped by who God is and what he is calling me to. I think there's some of that response that is good and right. And there's other aspects of that response that can go in, a, in an unhelpful, sinful direction uh, if I don't uh, adhere and, and uh, submit myself to God's word. And so maybe that's how you respond. Maybe you respond with confusion. Maybe you respond with curiosity and you just want all the answers. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe you just don't even really want to care about it or bother with it in, in any way, but, but how do you respond? My, my prayer is that Guy Mason, that pastor, and Andrew Thorburn would find great comfort and guidance from God through his word as the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit shapes and convicts and encourages. This is a clear, fiery trial that they are experiencing. And obviously, 1 Peter was written to give them and us a living hope in the face of such circumstances. So specifically, as we look at this passage, we're going to see uh, two things. We're going to see who we are, and then we're going to see quite clearly how to engage with the culture around us. It, it, was, it was one of those weeks in prep that I thought, because I, I, you know, I didn't like find this as I was like researching First Peter. This just kind of happened at the same time I was re- researching and, and preparing the sermon. And there's very rarely does some cultural situation that just happens align so clearly, clearly with the text uh, I'm about, about to preach. Maybe never this clearly. Uh, but this First Peter is, I mean, really the whole of the book is written to this kind of thing. But uh, specifically, even the passage we're going to look at today. Um, and so we'll, we'll see who, who we are and how to engage with the culture uh, around us. If you remember last week, we focused on the Jesus of the gospel. We talked about Jesus being chosen. Cho- man, I, those, whatever that word is right now is, is on, I'm on the struggle bus, but we're going to get through it together. It's, not, it's a new quirk I've developed today. Um, chosen. I don't know. Uh, we talked about Jesus being a chosen and precious cornerstone, the only firm foundation. And because that is who Jesus is, Peter's logical flow is this is who we are. Look in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so in this one little verse, even just the first half of this verse, we see four incredible identities uh, that, that are just kind of given to us. Uh, all of these come uh, directly from Old Testament, Old Testament passages that God spoke over Israel. So what do we think, uh, what do these things mean uh, to the Christians in Asia Minor and to you and me? 
um, taken together as just a whole, all of them together, it means that we are grafted into the same story that God has been telling from the beginning. The, the passages he's quoting here out of Exodus and out of Isaiah and out of Hosea, what those were saying to Israel, they are, Peter is saying, they are saying that about Christians that are in Christ. So this grand story that we have been grafted into is uh, one that uh, we are telling with our lives. And we have these four identities that are a part of that. We are a chosen race that God has made us his people. He has made all people, and out of those people, He has chosen a people to glorify His name. That's what this is communicating. In the same way that God chose Israel from among the nation, He does that same thing in Christ. And, and I think even about us being a chosen people, one of the things that can get undermined uh, in our day is, that, you know, and obviously in the ESV it says chosen race and other uh, translations it talks about being a chosen people and both of the words uh, work. And, and as, as we um, are, are understand the, the beauty of God choosing us out of all people, the, the reality is that that frees us to celebrate who we are, that who the cultures we came from, the ethnicity that we are uh, a part of, whatever that may be, whether it's Nepali or Afghan or Anglo, whatever that is. Uh, we, we get to acknowledge that and we get to celebrate that. We get to, but what, what God choosing us and making us his people is it means that we don't exalt that, that there's this whole new thing that has happened in the body of Christ that is so much more, that's so much more profound, that's so much more shaping, that's so much deeper and truer than even the very cultures we came from. And again, not to deny those cultures, we get to celebrate those differences. It actually means that one culture isn't more important than another culture. Uh, it means that in Christ, there's something deeper and more beautiful that he is shaping us and making us uh, to be. Biblically speaking, I am more unified with a Christian from Chad that doesn't speak my language than another white dude from this neighborhood who does. That's what this is communicating, that we have that kind of unity uh, in Christ. Um, and, and also we see quite clearly that I am in this new people because of God's sovereign choice. The reality is I have, I have no reason to boast in my own intellect or my own ability. And Peter doesn't use God's sovereignty as some theological talking point. It's just as the uh, song said, that it's, it's an it's a opportunity to worship God for who He is and what He has done and something that destroys any of our pride. That it's not something that we've figured out or we've done this thing that has made us be able to figure out who God is. No, God in His kindness has shown up and chosen us and made us His people. So we're a chosen race and then we're this a royal priesthood. Israel had priests and their job was to mediate between God and man. And now Peter is calling all Christians, all Christians, anybody in Christ, a royal priest. Not just certain ones, not just ones that are on stage, not just elders or deacons, not just public Christian personalities, but all Christians are now these royal priests. Royal priest kind of means the idea that we are the king's priest. That's what it means by royal, that adjective. This is why it says from last week in verse 5 that we didn't get into, that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the point of the Bible, the point of Hebrews, if you read it, is that 
because Jesus was the perfect priest, we now do not need another man to mediate between us and God. That, that we have the perfect priest in Jesus. He has done the mediating. So now we get to go directly to God. Something that in our individualistic culture might be lost on us, but it is incredible. It is incredible that we don't need, you don't need me, I don't need you in the sense of interacting and, and uh, seeking and clinging to who God is and what he has done, that I get to, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, I get to go directly to God. That's what it means that we, we are these, these royal priests. And then we don't need uh, a priest to offer sacrifices either because Jesus was also the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. So now we, as uh, verse 5 says, we offer these spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. It, it is reminiscent of Paul in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, And then he defines kind of what that is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Jesus has made us this holy, royal priest. If you are in Christ, this statement is true of you. And then also we see that we're this holy nation. As Christians, we are a large group of holy people. Like even if you just think about us, even if you think just about Northbrook, that we are a group of gathered people that are holy. And now a question that should kind of come to mind is like, man, I've hung around these people. That is not true. Like we, we are not holy people. Like how, how could this be, descriptor be true of us? Um, how could it be true of me? And, and, and we, we think about that individually, and, and we should, because that's what God has made us. But as a, as a group of people, God has given us through Christ His holiness like like we are a holy people because of god's grace to us in christ um we are this holy nation no one has earned it ourselves and every other world religion you have to earn your identity christianity is one in which it is given to you because jesus is holy anyone that places their faith in him is also holy and so the gift of holiness from Christ actually helps us see the world more clearly. Misguided Christians that we might see who think the world is full of rainbows and flowers are simply that. They're, they're misguided. They, they've stuck their head in the sand and aren't good at reading the Bible where we see all kinds of unholiness. Uh, because I've not found a, another book that acknowledges the depth of evil while offering a way out from it. And this is what holiness, the gift of holiness does to us so that those who place their faith in him escape God's righteous holy judgment against all evil. And then the last identity here in verse 9 is that we are a people for his own possession. Look at Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 on the screen. This is where a lot of this is coming from. It says, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The reality is, as we continue to read the Old Testament, we see that they were very unable to do this very thing. Which points to there was a need outside of themselves. There was a need outside of ourselves to make this happen. Um, and it happened in Christ. But we also see just that phrase that we are a treasured possession. That this should genuinely move us. 
When, when someone that we care about, someone that we know says something genuine, like they, not just that they love us, but that they like us, like we're able to receive that, that's so encouraging. That's just such an encourage, that's probably one of the most encouraging things that happens as a person is when you feel, get genuine, you feel like someone genuinely enjoys you uh, for who you are. Um, and again, I think we can take God's love for granted in that way, that he, uh, through Christ, like we are his treasured possession, that he finds great joy in us being his. That's, that's an incredible thing that should be a great comfort to us. As individual Christians, and then as a body of people, as we gather locally here in Northbrook and across the globe with all people that have placed their faith in Christ, we are a treasured possession. So this is who we are as Christians, a chosen race, a royal priest, royal priest, a holy nation, and God's treasured possession. And remember, we're only these things in Christ as we looked at who he was last week, God's chosen and precious cornerstone. That's why we can be chosen and precious. And this order is important. Who is Jesus and who are we? And in light of that, what are we called to? And here's why I want to bring up that order. Because you're not good at following that order. You're just not. Who, who is Jesus? Who are we? Then what are we called to? We are really bad. There's maybe a couple people that just focus on who we are in Christ and don't do anything for Him. That's, that, can be a, that can be an error. But most people, most of us struggle with, we run straight to, what are we supposed to do? What do I need to do? What, what is God calling me to in this situation? What do I need to do? How do I need to fix it? It's just, that's our proclivity is to, to run towards that. But, but Peter's order is, is holy. It's the order of the scriptures. Who is Jesus? Because he is who he is, who are we? And then what are we called to do? And guys, when we get that order wrong, it goes really bad. And it's really wrong. And I'm not saying it's even just linear, like it's just like we have to do this. It's almost one of focus and priority. Like when we, so it's not like just when we're doing what we're doing, we're not thinking about who Jesus is and who we are in him anymore. It's just like, do we prioritize who Jesus is and what the Bible says about him? And do we prioritize who we are because of that? Or do we mainly prioritize what the Bible calls us to do? Um, they're, they're all important. Uh, but we can't get our emphasis wrong or we'll be uh, really wrong. We don't always just need to look for another strategy to help, but we need to continue to come back to who is Jesus and who are we in him. So in light of all of that, how are we to engage this culture around us? Two kind of main points um, is Peter's going to help us have a right posture and a right purpose. Um, so let me bring it back to the Thorburn example real quick. Look at verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. So, so Peter is addressing this kind of reality. Exactly what happened with Thorburn. That, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he is expecting that. This is happening in Asia Minor. It's not like hypothetical. Peter's not like, oh, this may, you may want to be aware this could happen. This is going on, and he's speaking to uh, that reality. People are speaking evil of the Christians uh, in Asia Minor. Uh, and so think about that. Consider that. That is the circumstances. And in light of that, let's start with the kind of posture uh, we're supposed to have. Look at uh, verse 10. Once, you're, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Peter elaborating on us being God's people. And he's reminding us, isn't he? He's reminding us that we were not always God's people. He's reminding us of Hosea here. Uh, the, the people that you, we could quite clearly see did not deserve to be God's people. But God, out of his abundant grace, made him God's people. Um, we should always, in our posture towards others, respond in the humility that this brings. And the humility that dwelling on this reality and this truth brings. You and I are no better than anyone else but by the grace of God. And even by that doesn't, the grace of God doesn't make us better. It makes us God's people. It means He has saved us. Um, our, our responses, in our responses, we have to meditate on this truth until it washes away our pride. Because if, if it doesn't, then these people are you know, dumb idiots and we're the ones that have figured it out. Now, here's the, the reality. Some people are right and some people are wrong. We, we, we need to hold on to those truths and we'll get, we'll get to that. Uh, but humility has to be present. And when it is, it keeps us from kind of misappropriating this verse, that one in, uh, where it says, so that when they speak e against you as evildoers. Again, Peter is using the example of when they speak evil against you uh, for actually doing good. This is what Peter's assuming. He's assuming what happened in Thorburn's case, that he didn't do anything wrong. He just believed in Jesus and believes in the scriptures and they're speaking evil against him. That's the situation Peter is assuming. But we can grab a hold of that. And we can be like, man, I'm not doing anything wrong. And they're speaking evil against me when we're actually being evil. We're actually being sinful. Our response is actually, even if they're doing wrong, even if it's something that is wrong that we're even calling out, we're actually sinful in our response. And they're, they're pointing to that. And we're like, no, they're just doing that because, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, that could be happening, but it could also be, you could be being a jerk. And they're just acknowledging that reality with you. Uh, and you're responding in a sinful way. We need to, when we dwell on verse 10, it'll keep us from misappropriating verse 12 um, and have a, a clear conscience about the humility that is that we're at least striving for uh, in our life. I like what Tim Keller says, and he said this in an article actually about this recent controversy. He said, the fruit of the Spirit includes love, joy, and peace, patience and kindness, and humility. These must be evident as we speak about the gospel publicly. Right now, the most popular figures show confidence and fearlessness, but not love and humility. We cannot follow in that train. And so confidence and fearlessness are not bad, but absent of humility, they often lead to sinful responses. Um, so verse 10 fosters a posture of humility, but we're also to be holy. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So as we respond to the culture, we are to be humble, but we're also to be holy. He's, it's a command to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And that command is followed by just kind of this general principle that these passions of the flesh actually wage war against your soul. It's just this general true statement. And by soul, Peter's not meaning, he's not dividing the, the physical and the you know, soul. He's just, as a soul, he actually means the totality uh, of who we are. These passions of the flesh wage war against that. Some of our desires, when acted upon, are bad for us. Like, it's pretty much a universal truth. There's almost very few people that are living today that would disagree with that reality. That if we did everything we desired to do, that would go bad for us. And that's what Peter is saying as kind of a support to the reality that we should abstain 
from the desires of our flesh. Just a few examples. When we indulge in sinful desires of comfort, we are waging war against our soul. When we indulge in sinful desires of pleasure, we wage war against our soul. And again, even if you just think about those two realities, comfort and pleasure, and how those set us up to engage the, uh, the culture in a, in, a, in a holy way. When we're giving ourselves over to comfort and pleasure, we have taken a, a big part of any of our ability to speak to a culture. Uh, we've kind of kicked our legs out uh, from under us. But also, when we indulge in sinful responses, I mean, we can think of just in life and relationship, but also as we're talking right now, sinful responses to culture, again, we wage war against our soul. When people speak evil against us, we're going to have this kind of mixed desire of responses. So when people speak evil against you, you're, you're going to be tempted to respond poorly. That's probably not a surprise to any of you. Uh, like when even especially maybe we should just bring it to like family conflict. Uh, there's not one of us that escape that. Uh, none of us have been perfect there, whether it's moms and dads, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. Uh, when someone speaks evil against you, says something, brings something to you, your tendency and temptation is, not to, uh, is to respond sinfully, and that is bad for your soul. I think two temptations in particular are kind of the two extremes. There's one towards cowardice, and there's one towards combativeness. Often we dress cowardice up as humility. And, and we can dress combativeness up as standing for truth or righteous anger. Uh, I was at this um, Acts 29 conference recently, and this one guy, Justin Anderson, he, he thread this needle so good. And I can't do what he did, but he, he, this was coming from him. He says, uh, our progressive tendency, so maybe the kind of leaning towards uh, humility, but the temptation there is to change our goals to the culture's goals. So to change what the Bible would have us pursue and, and kind of start to modify that to what the culture says we should pursue. All along, being compassionate and maybe being humble and being so looking biblical, but pursuing things that are actually more about what the culture would desire than what the scriptures would point us to. And then he said the conservative tendency is to try to achieve biblical goals through worldly power. So not through biblical means, but through actual worldly means. And obviously we're to uh, pursue what the Bible would have us pursue in the way the Bible would have us pursue it. There's another um, uh, little clip kind of going around. We'll put it maybe in the weekly. I'll put a handful of resources in the weekly because there's so much here. But it was actually John Piper uh, responding to John MacArthur. And uh, they were doing a Q&A together, men that love each other, appreciate each other, are encouraged by one another. And uh, John MacArthur, they, they asked the question, like, basically, what is, um, you know, how do we get prepared for a culture that's becoming pretty uh, more hostile towards Christians and, and their beliefs, example, in, in the introduction? Uh, how do we prepare for that? And John MacArthur went on for uh, about 10 minutes. And then Piper's response uh, was so good. It, it was just so good. And what he said was he's like, I don't want to preach a sermon in which people walk away more angry at the culture uh, and feel like their, their, their predominant feeling is that they need to fight against the culture. Uh, Piper said, I want people to walk away uh, from a sermon um, uh, mesmerized by the sovereignty and beauty of who God is 
And he actually quotes 1 Peter, and he's like, I want them to think 1 Peter, that, that this world is full of suffering. Uh, but by God's grace, we can sacrifice and persevere to the end and, and look forward to that day. And, and I, I bring that up just because I, I, as we respond, we have, to, we have to be aware of, okay, what is our predominant feeling towards this culture? There are, our, our culture is crazy about so many things right now. That's just obvious. But, but is, our, is our predominant response to that uh, one of trying to fix and one of pride and one of judgment um, or is there this uh, humility? Is there this desire to, uh, to, to respond with a, a humble holiness towards that culture? And, and um, oh, uh, it's Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Peter surely has this passage in mind when he's uh, writing this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As you think about that, how does the call to holiness need to shape the responses in your life? Maybe it's towards the culture at large. Maybe it's towards interpersonal relationships, your husband, your wife, your kids. How, how does God's call to holiness need to correct and shape and form you? Uh, where are your proclivities encouraging and, and, and led by the Holy Spirit? And, and where do they, they kind of go off the tracks a bit? And, and you need God to shape you. Um, but here's the reality. We don't just have a posture. We also have a purpose. And you'll see part of that in verse 9. Part I skipped over. Our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then we actually do that with a, a clear hope. Look at verse 12 again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so Peter is saying that, that we should actually desire to proclaim and actually desire to proclaim with a desire to persuade that people actually come to believe in the beauty and hope that is found in Jesus. That it's not just a, a proclamation absent of persuasion. We're just spouting God's truth. Like we actually want the people we're spouting those truths to to actually believe in those truths. That when God comes back, they will be found in the people that are grateful that, for that reality, not still under his judgment. Uh, so our purpose is simple. It's persuasive proclamation. We don't need to apologize for what the Bible says. Our purpose isn't one of humility only. But, you, as, but in humility, we can confidently stand behind God's plan for the world. And this includes all the hot-button issues of our day, which many of them the Bible actually speaks really clearly about. There, there's some that might be some gray areas, but there's many that the Bible, we're not having to wonder what the Bible says about these things, and we never have to apologize for that. It's not, we're not just humble in our response. We're not just holy. We're also clear. We can confidently stand behind, behind God's truth, and we never have to uh, apologize for it. Uh, th those things aren't opposed to one another. Uh, they, they actually are really helpful. That's what, that's what the, Peter's calling us to, to, to both of those things. We're to proclaim his excellencies. Listen to Tim Keller again, speaking of both of these things. He says, Acts and Paul's epistles give us many examples of how Paul argued. He did not merely proclaim truth propositions, he showed the particular audience on their own terms 
why they should believe it. So we should not merely tell people the truth, but look for persuasive ways of reasoning with people's minds and hearts. Then he goes on to say, a quiet, courageous confidence in the truth of God's word. I think quiet means we don't have to yell it. We can just stand behind it. It's just there. We can just speak it. It will not do if audiences see Christians being hesitant to affirm anything that the Bible teaches. Even if you disagree with a person's beliefs, the strength and integrity of their belief can command admiration if they are visible. And so this is the idea that we persuasively proclaim. And and Peter gives us some clues uh, to how to do this. One of the ways we do it is just by worship. This idea of uh, proclaiming God's excellencies. Actually, some commentators are are curious if that actually means to uh, proclaim them to an outside world or if that's actually just describing worship. Like God is just excellent and beautiful and we're just proclaiming that in worship to him. I love uh, one commentator said this, said the line of distinction in Jewish worship between praise and testimony is often difficult to draw. And so that one of the practical ways we do this is we just live as Christian people as we interact with the world. Like when we hear good news, we can praise God for it. We can thank God for it. Whether the people that we're talking to are thanking God or know anything of God or not, we can actually just be Christian people. Uh, one of the ways, again, we kind of uh, you know, fall into a more cowardice kind of approach is we're not, we're not just actually being honest about who we are. Like, we, we really do praise God for that reality that just happened, and we can worship and praise God. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean you need to bust out in song. Um, that's not the only way to worship God, but we proclaim his excellencies. Uh, that should be a natural response from the Christian. And it may be one that you have to kind of undo the trappings of insecurity and fear of even being able to live that way among people. Uh, but it's one of the practical ways that we would just be among others and people see, oh, there's people that praise God for things. I forgot that was a thing. Uh, there's people that live in Texas that spend, you know, many of their days and weeks and months and years never seeing anybody praise God for anything. And if you were to work with them, if you're a friend with them, and you were to do that, that would be a different experience for them. And it's one of the ways we proclaim His excellencies to those uh, around us. And then obviously we share our story. Everyone that's a Christian has been called out of darkness into this marvelous light. And so we should pray for and desire opportunities to share that reality with others. It's not necessarily even sharing the gospel. It's not even that. It's just like, hey, you have been called out of darkness. You have had real darkness in your life. None of us escape that. We also still have real darkness in our life, and we have been called into this marvelous light. Like what a desire if we desired to share that story as often as we could. Like if we were actually looking for opportunities to share that story. I said this in a sermon, I don't know, many months ago. I'm sure all of you remember it perfectly. Um, But it's just this idea of like actually putting time into thinking about what we might say to somebody. Like sometimes we're like, we we fall over this um, obstacle of, man, I just don't know what to say. And that's all we do. We don't actually work on, what might I say? Like, what would I say to somebody? Like, put, like, how much do we work on things? How much do we put energy into so many things instead of uh, just actually putting work into that? And so, look, like, what would, this is what we did as a Go group this, this last week was we uh, boiled down our, our story, what God has done in our life, into, like, this 40 to 60 second story so that we can be more prepared when we have that kind of window to share that story. God has saved me 
out of so much darkness. And he's called me to live in his abundant light. Like his light has shone on my life in ways that are just, uh, they're just unmistakable. And he's done the same for you. That's multiplied throughout all of us. And, and that is a, that's something that we should be excited. It's, again, another way we worship. Uh, and one thing we should look towards sharing. So I would encourage you, pray about it. Consider thinking about, okay, could I do that this week? Could I try to put that work in? And would God provide an opportunity for me to share my story this week? And then uh, we persuasively proclaim also by praying. The reality is, again, God is the one that sovereignly chooses. Uh, Paul, again, in Colossians 4, tells us that our words should be seasoned with salt. So we should try to persuade. We should try to talk in a way that is encouraging. Like, we, we desire that. But ultimately, our words are not the ones that persuade. Like we, so if, we, if we're not praying, what we're doing is relying on our words to persuade, as opposed to, hey, God, you have to do this. God, would you save? God, would you provide an opportunity for me to do this? And God, would you use that opportunity? God, there's these non-Christians that I have in my life. Do we spend time praying for them and praying for opportunities to, again, share with them how God has saved us and called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? These are just kind of practical ways that we can walk out what it looks like to proclaim his excellencies to the world around us. So, by God's grace, we are God's people. That's all his work and his doing. And as God's people, we're called to a posture of humility while we confidently proclaim God's beautiful truth. And so I want you to see this additional identity that uh, is present in this passage. Did you see there in verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11, where it calls us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, and exiles. So again, this is another identity that we have been given. And, and there really are synonyms, so it's the, the repetition is there for emphasis. It's one of the big points of Peter's letter is that we, we are not home. Uh, that, that in this life, and, and really when we think about it that way, just even that thought, that perspective changes our pursuit of comfort. Our pursuit of, like I have, when we go on vacation, I have such a low bar of enjoyment. I know that may sound different to those of you that don't have kids, but it's like when I go on vacation, if I have any fun whatsoever, that's just a bonus. Um, unless I'm going without kids, then I have a little higher bar. Uh, but, but that's the, but it really is. And it's just, but if I were to go on vacation with all four of my kids and expect happiness and joy all the time, I'm going li- to have a very disappointing vacation. Um, and so they all stay alive. I have maybe some joy, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but, uh, but when we think about this place that we live, we think about that's, that's what Peter is doing. He's like, hey guys, you're not home. You're not where all comfort and joy is going to be found. You're passing through. You, you will be home, uh, but, but you are not there yet. And so there should be a perspective change. When we, when we have that, we're not going to pursue all of our comfort here in this life. Uh, we're not going consu- to pursue all the pleasure that we could possibly have in this life. We're, we're willing to lay that down knowing that uh, comfort beyond our imagination and pleasure beyond our imagination are, are waiting for us. And now again, we get glimpses of that and we get those kinds of joy, but they're not, they're not our, our sole pursuit. We, we are sojourners and exiles uh, in this world and that's what Peter is calling us to. When we're passing through, again, we're not going to be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes, as First Peter says in, in 
and chapter 4, um, that we can live those kinds of life. Again, not pursuing our ultimate comfort here, not pursue, but pursuing holiness, desiring for people to know God, uh, and that we could expect evil to be spoken against us, all while looking forward to that final day, that day of visitation as Peter calls it. Like that's something that um, we're, we're, we're not home, but as the song we're about to sing, it says we, we are almost home, every one of us. We, we don't have that much longer. How much, however old you are, we're, we're all almost there. Um, and, and as we consider that, it doesn't just change our perspective uh, and free us to be humble and holy as we look to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. Let me pray for us in that way. Lord Jesus, I think about how even right now in this moment, there's such great comfort to be had in you. That there's a a comfort to be had ultimately in you that we will enjoy completely and fully, but even now, as we go through the highs and lows of this life, that right now there is great comfort to be had in you. That's your grace and mercy towards us, and so we thank you and we praise you for it. And then, Holy Spirit, I just find great comfort that you see and know all that's going on in our culture, in the world, in the globe, in our church, and every uh, brother and sister here that has maybe different kinds of responses to these things. Spirit, you are present in all of it. Um, In my own heart and mind, when I get confused or tempted to respond in different ways, Spirit, I need you to to help me. Would Would you help us and would you shape us? Would you not leave us content of responding in ways that aren't shaped by your word, uh, but are shaped in our own tendencies? Um, And would you just grow us? Help us be a people that, um, with great compassion, with great humility, with a desire for holiness, grow in actually proclaiming your excellencies. Uh, We desire that. We need that. We confess we feel far from where we would hope to be. And so would you, would you grow us? And then would you remind us again, Spirit, that, that we are almost home. That if we look closely enough, we can actually see the finish line. Um, and would you keep us faithful to the end? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.